Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Tim. I'm on staff here as the student minister, uh, which means I spend a bit of time during the week studying, and I come here on Fridays and the weekends to help out. Uh, we are going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, uh, and as a brief sort of look back at the previous chapter, the, the kind of the idea of the first chapter was the dangers of what happens when the, the doctrine or the things that we follow are wrong, and how that can lead us astray. Uh, and really what we're going to be looking at today is how sound doctrine shapes and changes the way that we behave and are seen by others. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at, but I'm going to start us off with a prayer before we go any further, so let's me pr- let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and kind, a God who has loved us and saved us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we know who you are through your word, that you have equipped us with your spirit to know and fully understand your will for us in our lives. Lord, we pray now as we look at the word that you will guide our hearts and our minds to understand clearly your will for us, that you will guide what is spoken, that what is said and done here is done for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, wanted to start off with a joke. It's not, not a very good joke. In fact, it's probably a mildly offensive joke. Um, don't worry, it's not. Uh, the joke is, I'll say the joke and then you can tell me business. The joke is, how can you tell if someone is a vegan? Now, the answer to the joke is, don't worry, they'll tell you, all right? It's, it's meant to be a joke. It's making fun of that. It's sort of the, the, you know, the great Australian way of not actually dealing with complex issues about morality and just instead sort of insulting the person by making them seem snobbish or whatever. Uh, it's a great way to win an argument, but not really helpful anyway. Uh, the reason I'm sharing this joke with you is that as funny as that joke might be, although none of you laugh, so clearly it's not very funny, uh, it's not actually true. Uh, you can tell if someone is a vegan in so many different ways. If someone is a vegan, you can tell, first of all, but obviously by the things that they eat. If you have a meal with someone who is a vegan, it's pretty obvious by the things that they eat, that they're not someone who generally eats meat. Uh, the clothes that they choose to wear, they're generally much more ethical in the types of clothes, the animals that are used and things like that. A lot about them, even the way that they speak and think and talk, shows what they believe. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is I want you to think about the idea of belief and action and how your beliefs shape your actions. Uh, For vegans that I've been talking about, their entire lives, a large portion of what they do is shaped by a core belief that they hold on to. And my question to you tonight is, how much does your belief shape your actions? We're looking at the idea of building a church for Jesus' apprentices. Uh, And the Apostle Paul here in this passage really wants to encourage its readers to be mindful of how their actions show what they believe. Uh, He addresses four specific people that we're going to look at, or four specific groups. First of all, men, young and old, women, young and old, uh, slaves, and then he also actually addresses the idea of how doctrine shapes all of what we do here. Those are the four things that Paul actually wants to talk about. What he's talking about is how their behavior actually builds the church that they're in. So we're going to get right into it. We're going to start by looking, first of all, at how men build the church. Uh, we st- you look with me at verse 2, he, st- he says this to the elder men, from verse 2, he says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Sorry, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. He starts off by telling Titus to tell the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, and self-controlled. Uh, now, these are three uh, 
three very specific words, but what I want you to think about this is the language sort of actually indicates, when it talks about self-control and temperance, and even worthy of respect, what it's talking about is this idea of not allowing yourself to lose control because, specifically, of an outside influence like a substance such as alcohol. Paul is actually encouraging the men to be mindful of what they eat and drink and how that affects their ability to control themselves. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually really important to read this because when it says worthy of respect, it's a bit like, what does it mean to be worthy of respect? And Paul actually is saying it's not about having a nice job, to be good looking, to be fit. It's about being someone who is in control, who does not allow themselves to lose control because of things like alcohol and other things. And I want to say, particularly for men, for everyone, but particularly for men, alcohol is a really big deal in our society. Uh, Australia, especially, is a, a binge-drinking culture. There is sort of a sense of you either drink a lot or you don't drink. The, there often isn't a middle ground, and I think there should be, but there often isn't in the way that our culture perceives alcohol. Uh, I went ahead and I had a look while I was doing this, preparing this, at the Australian Institute of Criminology, and they told us between 2000 and 2006, 47% of all homicides were alcohol-related. Of those 47%, 60% had both people, victim and perpetrator, drunk. One in four people have been verbally abused by a stranger who is drunk. Uh, I wanted to look in a bit more to the domestic violence figures in alcohol, and it was just staggering to see how much alcohol affects things such as domestic violence and home abuse. Uh, and it's actually really hard to follow because it's, it's actually quite hard to track in the way that domestic violence works and then it's often kept secret. But it was awful to see what alcohol does to people, how it affects them. Paul is encouraging his men to not allow themselves to be consumed by things like alcohol. And I want to actually say to the men of the room, as, a, as a, just a personal thought, to consider how dangerous you are when you lose control how dangerous we are when we lose control of ourselves, when we allow ourselves to be drunk or whatever other method we're using. Now, I want to emphasize that, that Paul is not saying don't consume alcohol. He's not advocating for it, but he is saying that we not, can't allow it to consume us, to control us. He tells the men of God, the older men of God, to be self-controlled, to be temperate, that is, to be careful how they eat and consume, and in that, being worthy of self-respect. Then he moves on, and he tells them to be sound in faith, in love, and endurance. And he actually kind of creates this picture of, of a man who is, is, is strong in his faith, and in that faith, loves the people around him, and in that, he can endure through hardships. Now, I am... Um, I, like some of you maybe, I'm not sure, I don't know all of you super well, but some of you, like myself, might feel like you don't fit the typical Australian mould. Uh, I don't like beer, um, I think it's gross and I think it's too expensive. Uh, you know, you can get like 10 litres of vanilla Coke for the price of like six, anyway. anyway uh, I'm not exactly a, a muscle, muscular guy, I'm not into sport, I don't really enjoy any sort of sport. Like, I like playing it, but watching it is just not my thing. My hands are very soft. I have never had work to trade or done much housework. I've been a renter all my life, so I've never had to fix anything. 
<laughs> exactly. I don't fit the typical Australian male. And some of you are probably on the same page as me. Uh, but because I think when we picture males, we have this sort of cultural view. But what Paul is painting here is something much different. He is painting a man who is strong in his faith. He is a man who is strong in love. And through that, he endures. Uh, the men of the Bible are emotional men. They weep, they mourn, they cry. They don't fit the mold of the Australian masculine man because they try and fit this mold much more. It's not unmanly to cry, to be saddened. But it is manly to endure. It's not manly to shut down when times are hard as your coping mechanism to not deal with it but it is manly to show love even in times of strife and struggle. And it is manly to walk in your faith that shapes it. As we skip down a bit into, in Titus, if you look with me at, at verse 7, he says this. Sorry, verse 6, apologies. Verse 6, he says, Similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Paul encourages and he instructs the younger men by instructing Titus on what to instruct them. So it's a bit of a confusing sort of way here we're going. But he's telling Titus what younger men are to be like. And he creates this image again, if you notice the word there, self-control. Shows up again, this idea of being in control, not allowing something else to control you. And then he says that they are to do what is good, they are to, in their teaching, they are to show integrity, they are to show seriousness and soundness of speech. And as I was thinking about this, I, I was thinking about, the, again, we'll go back to the typ typical Aussie male. Uh, the typical young Aussie male is the, the, you know, the joker, the larrikin, the, the funny guy, the funny kid. Uh, one thing I've noticed is that the moment boys learn to speak, every answer they give you is a joke at least the first time. Uh, if any of you have been to the morning service, you'll notice that whenever they call the kids up, there's always one of the kids that gets up and makes a joke. We love to laugh. We love to make jokes. I do this all the time. Ask Stuart. Every time he gives me a problem, I always answer with a joke. It's what we do. It's what young men particularly love to do. We love to make jokes. We love to make fun. It's, it's typical Aussie culture. Everything is a bit light. Everything is a little, little bit just funny. But I think what Paul realizes and what he's telling Titus to show is that humor is not always appropriate. The larrikin has no place at a funeral. He has no place as someone teaching serious issues about life and death. Sometimes it is not right to joke, and, and sometimes it is admirable and right to be serious, to be show integrity, to be sound in our speech, and not allow ourselves to jump straight to the joke. Paul actually encourages the value of being serious people to understand the seriousness of life and to take it seriously. Uh, and I think an example personally is I tend to be a bit dismissive when people leave church. When they're like, I'm done with church. I'm like, all right. And I make a bit of a joke about it. And I, I was really convicted working under my, my minister and even working under Stuart to see how much it grieves them. 
it hurts them because they don't want to just make a joke. They want to acknowledge how hard this is and be serious. We use jokes to deal with hard times, but sometimes it's good to be serious, to be sound in our speech. That is Paul's sort of broad instructions that he's given to men. Uh, So we're going to look now at how Paul instructs women to build God's church. And if you look with me at verse 3, it says this. It says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. He addresses the older women, and again, we see this idea of, of to not drink too much wine, to not be slanderous. Uh, it's a bit of an unusual statement. Why specifically these women, uh, why are they instructed to not drink much wine? Uh, whereas everyone else kind of got vague responses. And I actually had the opportunity to look up a bit more of the, the cultural idea of, of the, the place that Titus is in. He's in a place called Crete, uh, and it's sort of under the, the spectrum of the Roman culture, but he's also got a lot of Greek culture and all other places in there. But particularly where they were, women were for the most part confined to the home. It was a cultural reality of life there. Uh, If you were a wife, you spent most of your time at home. Uh, And particularly as you grew older, you found that there was less and less for you to do. Often responsibilities would be passed on to others. uh, And you would even, you know, awfully, men would marry younger women and you would become the other wife that's just sort of ignored. And there was actually a culture of, of older women consuming quite a lot of alcohol because the one thing they could do was access their houses, alcohol stores, particularly wine, and drink. And that's why specifically Paul here is talking to them about not drinking too much wine. And again, what you're actually seeing in this passage is Paul, once again, is saying, be self-controlled. Do not allow yourself to lose control. As he also mentions there, that the uh, elder women are not to be slanderers, uh, or gossips in some of the translations. Uh, and I want to be cautious here because I think there's, there's definitely a cultural concept that exists that people view women as gossips. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think I'm probably a worse gossip than most women I've met. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't admit that. I have been in the past. But you know what the thing is about gossip, right? Is that gossip is addictive. You start, and what you suddenly realize is you're spiraling, and you're like, oh my gosh, and you're going and going and going, and you, so you end the conversation, and it's like been an hour and a half of gossip, and you feel exhausted because you've just done, all this, said, done and said all these things, and you, you realize you kind of lost control as you went along. Now, the reason Paul again addresses women here in regards to slandering and gossip is that, again, culturally, they were more likely in a position to allow that kind of thing to happen. They were more likely to be at home with other women, absent from work and other things, and had a lot of time to talk and do other things. So it it, it sort of allowed them. I don't think Paul is saying that women are gossips. I think he is addressing a cultural reality of women at that time. And I think we can all learn that gossip is bad. I had a a friend who, who used to always come and complain to me about another friend. And I started to hate that other friend. Couldn't, couldn't stand them. Didn't like them, never really met them much, but I just could not stand them. And then eventually, I got the chance to meet this friend, and I remember seeing the friend who complained to me all the time, go up to that friend, hug them, and they were like best friends. And in my mind, I was confused. I'm like, don't we hate this person? Haven't we been talking about how awful this person has been for ages, and yet now what do we do? I don't know what to do. And it's the danger of slander, of gossip, of talking ill of others in their absence. We, we, may not actually, we may be able to walk away and be fine with it, but others actually start to hate them. 
Uh, there's a, a great piece of advice I used to be told, don't ever complain to your parents about your spouse. Because even though you will forgive them, your parents won't. As this really valuable lesson in, in gossip, in that you may be able to move on, but others may not. That to do all of this, to be in control of themselves, there's this big theme of self-control so that they can teach younger women what is good. And it's this big theme throughout Titus, that the old teach the young. And what I love about this passage is it's not older men go and teach younger men about the Trinity and about other doctrinal issues, and older women go and teach younger women about transubst... No, that's, not, that's a Catholic thing. Uh, about, about, you know, predestination and other doctrinal issues. He doesn't talk about going and teaching. He says, go and teach them how to live. Go and teach them what it means to actively live as we saw in the beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2, sound doctrine. What does it look like to live it? So we move on to younger women. And this is where things get a little bit harder. So the older women control themselves so that they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children. That sounds all right. Not, a, not pretty self-explanatory. Uh, to be self-controlled. Again, you, you're seeing this pattern here, self-control, directly addressed, this idea of, of being in control of ourselves. To be pure. Again, that's an okay thing to be. To be busy at home. Yeah, that's an appropriate awkward silence for what I just read. It's not a, not a nice thing to read that. that. That's pretty confronting. And you go on, to be kind. All right, I don't mind being kind. Kindness is good. Uh, to be subject to their husbands. All right, that's a bit... That's hard. As a 21st, even as a 21st century male, I struggle to read that appropriately sometimes. And it's this really hard and confronting thing as we read this passage. What does it mean? Why is Paul telling women to be busy at home? What is he trying to say? What is he trying to say when he tells women to be subject to their husbands? Uh, I thought we would look, first of all, at what it means to be busy at home. Uh, and by the best way I thought was to introduce you to someone. Uh, but I'll see if anyone here is really familiar with European, particularly United Kingdom history. Does anyone know who this is? Good, none of you will. Uh, she, I didn't know who she was until I Googled her. Uh, her name is... <laughs> Melissa Fawcett is her name. And she is actually a really important person in, in, in United Kingdom and even Australian history. Uh, she was a leader of the suffragette movement in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, and the suffragette movement, if you don't know what that is, I didn't know what it is either until I looked it up, uh, was a movement of women who were advocating for the same rights as men. They wanted the right to vote, to do other things. Uh, and this woman particularly, she led that movement, and she is credited as being responsible for the reason why in places like the United Kingdom and Australia, women can now vote and participate in politics. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, when she was made Prime Minister, claimed that she, this woman is the reason she can now stand there and lead this country. Uh, she was responsible partly for the, the Representation of People Act in, eight, in 1918, which saw countless women, not all, but a lot of women, and a lot of disenfranchised men given the right to vote. And the reason I'm sharing this, this pretty awesome person with you is that when she was campaigning, when her movement was pushing for women's rights, this passage was used to tell her no. 
people would look at this passage and say, the Bible tells us that your place is at home. And it's a bit of a struggle as we read that, because that seems to be, if we take it directly out of the Bible and just read it out loud, busy at home, that's what it seems to say. Uh, but one of the important things to remember, and you'll notice it as we jump later on to another part of the Bible, is that these verses, they don't exist on their own. They exist in the Bible. So as we look at the Bible, we have to consider what does the Bible say as a whole about women and their role? Uh, and a big place that I think we can turn to is Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 33. Uh, and I would encourage you, uh, I'm not going to read all of it to you, but go home and have a read of this proverb. Uh, it is an awesome proverb in understanding what it means to be a Hebrew woman. Uh, throughout this, this passage of Proverbs, uh, she's described as someone who rises early. Fair enough. Uh, she's described as someone whose husband has full confidence in her. She's described as someone who travels to the markets and sells what she has made. She's described as someone who takes her money and buys a field and works in that field on her own and sells again what she has earned from that field. She's described as someone who is hardworking, who cares for everyone around her. She is not the image we have of the 1800s housewife that doesn't leave home. She is, if you read it, an independent woman in you know, a contemporary sense. She is someone who is in full control of what she does. And she is admired for it by her husband, her family, and the people around her. Her key defining factor is that she is hard-working. And as, I think that's a really key thing to remember as we look back at this passage. When Paul is talking to these women when he tells them to be busy at home, he's actually acknowledging the reality of their circumstance. They are not Hebrew women living in a Hebrew society. They are Cretans. That, I mean that as a positive thing. That's who they are, even though we use that as an insult. They are Cretan women who are forced to stay at home. And what Paul is actually encouraging them against is idleness. That is, allowing themselves to be idle. He is saying... Be busy at home, not because that's your place, but because idleness is dangerous. And when you actually think about what we've been looking at, it fits in perfectly with this idea of self-control. Idleness is such a great danger in the Bible. Even if I go back to Proverbs, throughout Proverbs and other parts of the Bible, we're told that idleness is really dangerous. Uh, even thinking just secularly, secular, non-biblically for a second, um, like uh, research shows that if you do a chore whether you are a man or a woman, it doesn't really matter who you are, you are actually happier at the completion of that chore. And that it's bad for us mentally to sit around and do nothing. Paul wants these women to be self-controlled and he encourages them to be busy so that they can be controlled, in control. The second part of this little uh, verse that we read uh, is a bit more complicated to answer, even though that felt pretty complicated. This is even more complicated. And so what I want to encourage you guys to do with me is to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we'll go there together. It's on page 1176, if you have the smaller Bibles. Uh, I don't know what the large print one is. Uh, Paul in Titus tells women to be subject to their husbands. And what I thought I would do as we uh, continue on is to have a quick look at at submission and authority, and why God actually even asks of anyone. If you look through uh, Ephesians, we're starting at verse 22, he, tells, he says, Wives, submit to your, 
Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Paul encourages wives in Ephesians, the same author as Titus, to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. That's really important that we acknowledge that. He's not just saying submit because I said so. He's, he's creating this, this idea in our head as we think about this. He encourages wives, it's important to understand, he says wives, not all women, wives to submit to their husbands in the same way as the church submits to Christ. And then he says this, if you look with me at Ephesians 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy in blame and blameless. So he uses this idea of Christ sacrifices and leads the church. Women, the church submits to Christ Christ leads the church through his sacrifice and cleanses them. That is the relationship that Paul is addressing when he talks about marriage. And it's something that we call, uh, something that I like to think of as sort of biblical symbolism. And so really what's actually happening here is that the women are sacrificing themselves to their husbands in submission, and the men are sacrificing themselves to their wives in leadership. And that's really important to understand because when we talk about leadership we think of our modern politicians who are incredibly self-serving, who look after their own needs first, yet the leadership model here is that of Christ and the church. Christ did all that he could for the church. He gave his life for the people of God. And men are called to live that same way. Uh, When I hear this talked about, I've often heard men go, you know what, Women have to submit, but guys, you have to die for your wives. And I'm going to be honest, that's a pretty easy thing to commit to in today's culture as a male. Yeah, I'll die for Naomi, sure. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to have to die for Naomi, probably not. Uh, It's really easy to say something like that, but what actually it means in this passage, it's not about just you have to be willing to die, it's that you have to give up yourself entirely to lead in sacrifice to your wife. And this is really important because I think that that when submission and leadership are done right, it is really hard to see the difference because they are both about giving the entirety of yourself to the other person. The husband leads by sacrificing his needs, his wants, his desires for his wife. And his wife sacrifices her authority as in submission to her husband. They are both about sacrifice for one another. And it's actually a pretty much a well-known psychological fact in relationships. I mean, my wife might correct me on this. But that one of the best key things for a good relationship is a willingness to put your own needs aside to care for the other. It's just a blanket thing that is really important to know. And this is actually, if you look with me at Ephesians 5.31, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul is saying to us that marriage is, in fact, biblical symbolism of Jesus Christ and the church. And what that means for us is that when we do marriage right, we are actually showing to the world Jesus' love for the church and the church's love for Jesus. It's not the sole purpose of marriage, but it's one of the key things that Paul enforces. 
that this is for others to see and know Jesus. It's not an easy thing to be called to do. But as we read here at the end of this part of Titus, we go back to Titus, so that no one will malign the word of God. This this submission, this love under a Christ-like leadership is so that people will see Jesus in your relationship. Now, there are caveats to this, of course. Um, I want to say, and Stuart says this every time, and it's really important to say, this is not an excuse for domestic violence. This is not an excuse for abuse or harm of any kind. And it's also not an excuse to stay in a relationship where that is happening. It's not a justification to stay. It is what God intends of us when we live right. And particularly, you might be here today and you might be married to someone who isn't a Christian. Uh, And I'd love to go into more detail about that, but I would encourage you to have a look at 1 Peter. And it talks about a similar idea of Christ-like love for their husband, winning them over for Jesus. Uh, I encourage you to have a look through 1 Peter if that's something that's uh, on your heart. We move on now to others building the church. Paul talks a little bit here about slavery, and I don't want to spend too much time in this because I think Stuart, when he did Colossians, he did a really good job of covering the idea of slavery in the ancient world and how the Bible talks about it. Uh, So I would encourage you, if you maybe weren't here or you've forgotten, to go back and have a listen to those sermons from Colossians. They're online. Uh, But to give you a really brief summary, slavery existed. The Bible does not support it or condone it at all, but it provides avenues for people to function in that environment. It provides instructions. The instructions are not, therefore, we condone slavery, but we understand that this is the reality of the world. And so he addresses slaves. And again, if you actually look through this idea of the slaves here, they are, too, being called to be self-controlled. You look with me at verse uh, 9. It says, Teach slaves to be subject to their master and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, to not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Slaves are told to not steal and to be trustworthy. Now again, I want to say that this is about self-control. If you were a slave, you were generally undersupervised a lot. You were often, slaves were often given money to go to the markets and to shop for what was needed for. Uh, slaves were often left at home on their own. Uh, There was opportunity for them to steal and be dishonest. And and Paul is encouraging them to not give in to those temptations to control themselves, to be controlled. The thing, however, that I think stuck out for me most of all in this little section here is, is what happens at the end here. He says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Slaves were nobodies. They were the lowest people of society. They were not considered humans. They were considered property. Some animals had greater rights than some slaves. They were destitute. They were without hope. And yet Paul says, you, you worthless people, not worthless because Paul says they're worthless, but because the world has said they're worthless, you too can make God attractive. You too have the power to do God's work. I was trying to think about a modern sort of example of this, uh, and I've heard people use the idea of work, and being hard workers is the same as what Paul said about slavery, and I don't think that's a fair comparison. One, because slavery exists today. Uh, There are people who are slaves, and they are treated as the lowest people. 
But I was thinking maybe more closer to home, someone who is in a circumstance where they, they can't quit their job. I'm not talking about can't quit their job because they've got a big mortgage. I'm talking about they have nothing. Food is often not something they consume. They go to work and they are abused and taken advantage of. And these people exist in our world, in our cities. They are hurt, they are downtrodden, and they are ignored. And yet Paul says these people, they can make God attractive. And it's a testament to the power God has in this world that even the people that we ignore, well, maybe not all of you, but maybe I ignore at least, have power. Finally, we look at the idea of doctrine building God's church. Uh, If you look with me from verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that have his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul ends this little chapter here with the reason we live like this. We live like this because we have been given the sound doctrine. The grace of God has appeared and offered us salvation. That is our doctrine. We are saved through Jesus Christ. And if we take that doctrine and then we add to it sound behavior, we say no to ungodly worldly passions, we live upright and godly lives, if we, we add our sound doctrine and our, hope, our sound behavior and then we add our hope, we wait for Jesus to return, we know he is coming back. If we add these things together, we get this. No one will malign the word of God. Those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. In every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. What he is saying here is that sound doctrine driven by sound behavior, motivated by true hope, shows the world Jesus. The way that you live shows the world who Jesus is. That is the sound doctrine that that Peter wants Titus to teach. We are building a church for Jesus' apprentices. Uh, And as I uh, I finish up, I was thinking of how how can I help us walk out of here and do something with it? Uh, And I reflected back on my holiday last week. I had the chance to go to Hawaii. I was very blessed. Uh, Blessed probably isn't the right word. I just happened to I don't know the right word to use, but I got to go to Hawaii, uh, and I noticed two things while I was in Hawaii. Uh, First of all, Black Friday sales were everywhere. Almost every second ad said, Black Friday sale, Black Friday sale, starts now, starts now. Uh, There was occasionally a few ads for Wendy's in between all those ads, but it was mostly Black Friday sales, and I was confused because it was Monday, and they started now, and they were Black Friday. So my first thought was that they didn't know what day of the week it was. Uh, My second thought was that they were obsessed with sales, The second thing I observed was that they love to make fun of their spouses. I uh, had a conversation and I asked one of the men, do you like your job? And he said, it gets me out of the house away from my wife and kids. 
And I, it's not a one-off statement. I, I had one, we, we were traveling, and the guy just openly told us that, unprovoked. We didn't even ask for it. And I, I don't think it's because they actually hate their wives, because I saw one guy make the same joke in front of his wife a few years ago, uh, and she laughed. So either they really hate each other, or there's, you know, there's something else going on there. But it's this idea of humor that it kind of insults and shows no respect for our partner, for the person we care for. And I guess what I want us to consider as we leave here today is that are you in control? The people that sell us things want us to lose control. And I don't want to make anyone feel guilty for buying anything this Black Friday. Um, I must confess that I went pram shopping and it, it's, it's consuming. You do lose control when you participate in these things. Uh, but it's not just sales, it's not just alcohol, it's not just drugs, it's everything. Anything can take away our control. Uh, to give you another example of me failing is I was obsessed with this book and I had to teach scripture the next day and I couldn't put the book down and I read the book till 4 a.m. before I went to bed. It wasn't a drug, it wasn't anything else, it was just a book and it took control of me. Uh, pornography addiction is another huge thing in this world that is consuming young men and young women. The world wants to take away, I put it upside down, the world wants to take away control from us. And I think Satan wants to take away control from us so that we can no longer focus on Jesus. It's not about being the master of our own destiny. That's not what I'm encouraging us to do. But it's about not allowing the things of this world to stop us from doing what is right for Jesus. The second thing I want us to consider is, are we being seen for Christ? Uh, I use the example of the husband making fun of his wife, and that's an example of someone who shows to the world what he wants to be seen as, the joker who makes jokes about his wife. And we laugh at that, but we all do it. How was your weekend? Uh, the wife made me clean the house. That, that I live in, that is also my house, but somehow not my... Anyway, we complain about them. You might go to a sport event and, and talk badly about someone that you care about. You might complain about your friends, people you care about. You might just live in a way that doesn't show anything about who you, what you believe. And my challenge to you, really tonight, is to live like a vegan Christian. That is not to not eat meat, I mean, although there's nothing wrong if you choose to do that, but it's to live as someone who can be seen what they believe by the way that they act. To have a seen belief. It's not about drawing attention to yourself to be, to be seen as righteous or above others, but it's about in your actions showing the world Jesus Christ. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has loved us, that has given your life for us, that we stand forgiven as your children, forgiven through your blood on the cross. We pray that you help us to live a life that draws others to this same grace, that draws others to this same love through your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, it is Q&A. There's a lot. I said a lot, so if you have any questions, please feel free to ask. And if you don't, I'll just consider it a compliment that I covered everything really well. Oh. Sorry, Tim. Um, so you went over all of the parents and slaves and stuff, but in the passage it did also mention kids 
but you didn't go over that. Is there a particular reason for that? So, the, yeah, Ephesians mentioned kids. So the main reason was I was focusing on Titus and Ephesians was kind of my um, support of the point I was trying to make about submission. So that's probably the primary reason I didn't really focus on that. Did, okay. did you have a question about kids or were you just wondering why? Not necessarily, just wondering. I mean, it, it's kind of self-explanatory with children. They're, they're asked to be obedient to their parents. Yeah. Uh, but I actually think what's important in this passage is, it, is the idea of, of the old teaching the young. Um, so obedience is taught. All of these things are taught by the elderly. And so there's a real responsibility on us, more so than you, but then you will have the same thing as you grow older, to not just your own children, but others that are younger than you, to teach them how to live a godly life. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I have one more question. Yeah. Um, what would you say the age range for young men and young women would be? It's awkward. You don't want to give an exact number because it's not... I, I feel like young women, teenagers, I honestly feel like that. Um, there's de- particularly because as, they get to, as you get to this age, you start to make your own choices about who you want to talk to, where you want to spend your time. And I think that's a really crucial thing. To be honest, I think from birth is when younger women are taught. Uh, and, and that's why the Ephesians passage puts the relationship between father and children as the teachers, but Titus kind of adds the communal aspect, that there is a responsibility of all of us. But... I think a key part of that is in modelling, to sh- the way that we live being observed by younger people and they reflect that, yeah. That's it. It's not about vegans, is it? <laughs> no, I've already given you everything I have to say on that. Um, so I had a question, um, you were talking about uh, the concept of slander and gossip and that was more targeted at the women, but um, mm. uh, as you made the point that, that you don't think it's necessarily gender-specific. Um, so, in my experience, I often encounter situations where I'll have a interesting interaction with a, a, another person at work or, or wherever it happens to be, and then I go away and maybe debrief that with my wife or a friend or something like that. Mm. And um, what I'm interested in is... is a, whether you feel that there is positive value in that or is it just gossip disguised as a debrief? Um, so is, is, is there ever a productive scenario for that to be able to work through, oh, well, this person just shouted at me at work and mm. my boss is a massive jerk and, you know, or, uh, or is that simply, you know, an excuse to gossip about them and, and have a little bit of a rant and... Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, get, I, think, I think the key thing for me in identifying it is how much pleasure you gain from what you're sharing. Uh, there's a difference between your boss has yelled at you and it's affected you and you need to share that, and a difference between almost... I think gossip is more obvious because we're excited about it. We're almost like, hey, guys, guess what happened? And, and even then, it's not, it's not so much about sharing a story because you might just have a mate at work who's done something funny and going home and telling your wife about that funny thing is not necessarily gossip. I think it's that that communication where we want to pull them down and it, it brings us sort of a sense of pleasure and excitement and joy as opposed to a sense of relief at expressing a frustration that we felt because of someone else. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's super helpful. Um, and would that, um, so that covers gossip, what if, what if you're talking about slander and I'm, I'm saying, well, why is so-and-so such a moron doing this, that and the other? <laughs> now, again, it, it, it could be me 
verbally processing, but I wonder, is there detrimental to the other party because I'm putting that on them? And, and how do we ascertain whether it's a productive conversation in, mm. from the slander perspective? Are we just getting something off our chest? And that may not be productive or helpful to yeah. either side of the conversation. Or is it working through an issue? And Yeah, I think slander is a bit more like... You, you don't just tell your wife, you go and tell 30 other people the mistake that that person made. Uh, because mistakes can be frustrating in workplaces and we feel frustration and there is a healthiness to expressing it. I mean, I, my caution would be becoming addicted to frustration, um, which is actually a real thing apparently. We can become chemically addicted to anger and frustration by constantly jumping to it. But there's definitely an idea of, of, of slander being a little bit more like, I want to to make this person look... I'm going out of my way to make this person look bad to the many different people that I talk to as opposed to, You've ups this person has upset me and I need to tell someone. Uh, and so that's hard because when you're emotional, sometimes both can kind of come out. Uh, and so I guess it's just, you know, that's the way this idea of self-control comes into play. It helps us as we consider what we share. Yeah. 